This is The Dark Ride with Mr. Dark. Hello again, my friends. Hello again, and welcome to another trip around this, The Dark Ride, with yours truly, your ever-humble host, Mr. Dark, the man with the voice of gold, like the golden gun, all buffed up on my hunter build in Destiny 2. Eyes up, guardians. We come together again today for week two on this grand circle tour of everything The Dark Ride has to offer, which means entertainment. That's right, this week I'll be delving into all sorts of entertaining offerings from the world of media involving movies, games, music, and even other podcasts. We've got a lot to cover this week, so climb aboard and lean back in your seats so the surround sound speakers can do their job, and away we go! Let's get started with the big news this week. The massive San Diego Comic-Con returned full force last week and dropped, ironically, not so much comic news as movie news. Sure, much of it was in the form of news about comic book movies, but I'm just saying. As such, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the bounty delivered unto us on this very recording. The biggest news? No doubt the folks over at Marvel were the big winners. It was said a while back that Kevin Feige... Feige... Feige? How do you say that guy's name, anyway? Kevin Feige had went on a big retreat with the powers that be at the MCU, that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe for those of you in Pleasant Hill, to decide the future of all things Marvel movie. They were certainly busy because, boy oh howdy, did they have a lot to talk about at the convention last week. We got trailers for quite a bit, including some that haven't been released publicly yet, like the Ant-Man and Wasp Quantum Mania trailer and Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3. We did get full trailers for Wakanda Forever, the new title for Black Panther 2, the I Am Groot series of shorts, and the She-Hulk Attorney at Law series. Wakanda Forever achieved three things. It brought tears to the eyes of everyone who watched it, it gave us a quick nod assuring us that Ironheart is going to show up here and likely have an origin arc, and revealed Namor, the Submariner, King of Atlantis. What it did not do was even give us a clue as to who the new Black Panther will be. Given that they didn't even name the film Black Panther 2 should be a message here. That's not going to be the focus of this film. I imagine this movie is going to be about T'Challa, Chadwick Boseman, that unified legacy, and Wakanda moving on from that loss and dealing with whatever threat arises, whether that's Namor, who isn't always friendly with land-dwelling humans, or someone else looking to capitalize on the loss of their king. By the end of the film, I'm sure we'll have a new panther, long may they reign. The trailer emphasizes that writer-director Ryan Coogler assembled one of the most incredible casts in modern action film history for the first Panther movie, and he's going to make the full use of that in this film, You've got Angela Bassett. You use Angela Bassett. I Am Groot looks cute. I'm glad they're just animated shorts. That's a gag that will wear thin very quickly on its own. 
She-Hulk got some backlash from the original teaser trailer reminding us that fanboys suck. The new trailer reveals what smart people would expect, a very clever and funny superhero comedy about the character balancing her law career and the expectations of being a new soup. You know, like the comic. This is Tatiana Maslany, another absolute casting coup for Disney Marvel. She's one of the great talents out there. Landing her for this relative piece of fluff was incredible. The trailer looks to nail the tone perfectly, making something that nerds can enjoy, but oh no, professional women the same age can get into even if they've never read a comic. And oh yeah, there's that other superhero lawyer showing up at the end of the trailer. Disney making good use of the cash they paid Netflix, given that every single female, regardless of age, exploded when he appeared in the Spider-Man movie so loud that I have yet to hear what he actually said on screen. It was like when Elton John introduces George Michael and they sing Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me together live. Just five minutes of constant screaming. Speaking of that, 18 episodes adopting a really good Daredevil storyline from the comics with the cast from Netflix, including D'Onofrio's Kingpin? Is it my birthday already? Other announcements. Sam's Captain America gets his first movie, New World Order. A lot of people bagged on his series. Those people are stupid. It had some of the best action scenes in MCU history, the best and most relevant dramatic notes, and Sam's cap is freaking awesome in design and execution. Fight me. So, 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 so much more. Reaching into 2025. They aren't playing. New Avengers movies without even an Avengers team yet. Both adapting fan-favorite story arcs from the comics. Both involving major fan-favorite villains. That's... Kind of massive. On the TV side, great jumping Jehoshaphat. We've got an Agatha Harkness spinoff from WandaVision, Loki Season 2, an Ironheart show once she's introduced in Wakanda Forever, the Echo spinoff from the Daredevil series, What If Season 2 and 3, a return of the animated X-Men show called X-Men 97, and an animated Spider-Man show called Spider-Man Freshman Year. I'm probably missing stuff. It just keeps coming. I know some people are talking about Marvel fatigue. Good, don't watch. Other than the massive misstep of Miss Marvel, everything else has been great. They keep hitting highlights from the books. My only complaint is no more Moon Knight on the schedule, which is a horrible mistake. Pay Oscar and the crew whatever they want and make more. More, more, more. All the things. Oh, and Modoc is the villain of the next Ant-Man movie, and if that doesn't make you smile, you need therapy. Meanwhile, DC announced Shazam 2 and Black Adam. So, yeah. They're doing great over there now that Discovery Channel is running stuff. Mind you, Black Adam looks astounding. Just perfect. I credit Dwayne Johnson because that guy wasn't going to let that movie be anything but perfect. Shazam looks fun. I still haven't watched the first one. It looked fun. The word is out that Zack Snyder coordinated the social media hits against his producers on Justice League to try and get his cut funded and released, including using Ray Fisher to accuse everyone of racism. So all of that was one guy up to pure villainy to get what he wanted, and it worked. Good job, fanboys and people who hate Joss Whedon for cheating on his first wife. Well done. Now Snyder is quoting Mussolini favorably on social media, but you definitely didn't create a monster. Gee, I wonder why Disney gave a pass on his Star Wars project. Hmm, I, I just can't figure that one out.
DC, Warners, or whoever you are this week, just go the Disney route and let a geek run things, not Snyder. And let good directors make good movies with loyal comic scripts. The fans will show up. Phew, that's a lot of comic book stuff. Oh, 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 one other SDCC thing. The trailer for John Wick 4 came out. Do I need to say it looks incredible? I mean, could it be anything else given where they left him at the end of 3? Oh, and Jet Li is in it. Jet frickin' Lee. The voiceover says, John, you can't kill literally everybody. And it ends with John giving a look that says, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can. Put it in my eyeballs. Right now. Shove it in there. Use tools if necessary. Crowbars. We're going to stay on movies for a bit, but move away from upcoming to currently existing movies. During the pandemic, a guy named Rob Savage did the impossible. Using a small cast, a tiny budget, and the video chat tool Zoom, he made a horror film that was one of the scariest things anyone had ever seen that both commented on the current condition of the world in lockdown and played on all of our fears. As we all used said tool to communicate and work, he used Zoom to scare the absolute fecal matter out of us. Just an hour-long host was genius. Perfectly crafted, elegantly honed genius. Overnight, Savage became a viral sensation. This was his first film? What? Blumhouse picked him up for a three-picture deal and funded his second film, and it's here, and... Oh, dear. I really wish I had better to say. I feel like I did when I watched Sex Tape, spelled SX underscore tape, which was directed by Bernard Rose, the man who brought us the original Candyman, an absolute horror classic. He then returns to horror with the single worst found footage horror film in history. Until this one. Like SX Tape, the difference between the two films is so staggering that I can't believe they were made by the same men unless they suffered some kind of debilitating head wound and making a movie with a handheld camera was some kind of cognitive therapy. While Sex Tape broke the seven deadly sins of found footage, that review remains my favorite of all time. Go looking for it if you like. It's still out there last I looked on the site that shall not be named. Dashcam, Rob Savage's second film, does not because it would have to be something to do that. Dashcam is, at the start, supposedly a found footage film told via dashcam. Okay, clever. Except it isn't. It's not a dashcam. Okay, hang on. Look, let's get this out of the way. I hate to do this. I do, but it must be said. This movie is essentially about following around musician-comedian Annie Hardy who is doing a very weird version of her normal persona, who, in this case, is a MAGA-hat-wearing, anti-vax, uber-obnoxious, right-wing conspiracy type. I did a little looking, and apparently she really isn't this in her performing persona, although goes off on weird rants about not following the norm, and if the norm means doing stuff like wearing masks, then I guess... And she's a leftist in her personal life, so I'm baffled by this choice entirely. No, it does not factor into the arc of the character. There is no arc for the character. She irritates and annoys everyone around her. 
then eventually gets wrapped in a bizarre supernatural pursuit for absolutely no reason in ways that make zero sense and are never explained. A bunch of things happen that make less sense, and eventually the movie ends. Nothing makes sense. There's no logic or reason. People do things randomly. And despite some good gore, there's nothing scary going on in any way. Most of all, someone, I'm assuming Savage and at least one of his producers, were absolutely certain of the talent and abilities of Hardy to the extent that even the closing credits are replaced by her improvisationally rapping them with filthy lyrics. I don't like punching down, and I'm nobody, absolutely nobody, yet I still feel like I'm punching down, despite the fact that this woman seems to have some kind of a recording career. But she has zero talent. Anyone can do what she does here. There are crackheads on the streets of Dallas doing what she does in this film right now, and they're not getting paid. Or filmed. I have no idea what Savage was thinking. I have no idea what the folks at Blumhouse were thinking. Did nobody pull him aside and say, Hey, Rob, I'm sorry, but Annie just isn't going to work. You've got to start over here with an actual script or a real idea. Just Annie doing her band car idea and putting a phone up while she makes up stupid songs and scary things happen. It's not a film. It's not even a web thing. I don't know how she does it, so you've got to send her home and go back to square one, okay? Nobody? Nobody at the studio did this? I'm guessing the budget was literally zero, and this happened mid-pandemic when nothing was getting made anyway, so they just said go for it, but it's a disgrace on their name. It's a potential career killer for Savage. Host or not, I'm not watching anything else he makes until ten people I trust watch it and tell me it's the best thing ever. This is the most baffling mainstream release of a film possibly ever. And I've seen Attack of the Killer Tomatoes in the theater. Shudder is, of course, the place to find horror. Yes, yes, I know there are dozens of streaming services. I know there are too many. But if you enjoy horror, you only need one. People ask me to recommend horror stuff all the time, and I'll often say just subscribe to horror and watch everything. It's hard to go wrong. The curator over there, Sam Zimmerman, is a brother from another mother. We share a brain. Except for the giallo. Sam, if you ever listen to this, slow down. You need an intervention. You don't need to have literally every giallo ever made on the service. It's getting hard to find other stuff because of all the giallo on the site, dude. Chill. You're drunk with power. Anyway, he took a break from searching for yet another movie involving an Italian in an overcoat killing disaffected models with a razor in Rome in 1967 to grab a Taiwanese movie with quite a bit of buzz, The Sadness. While the director, Rob Jabez, I'm guessing that's not his real name, is Canadian, this is indeed a Taiwanese movie, which is kind of a big deal as it goes places very daring given the tense situation between Taiwan and the mainland Chinese government. The movie is heavily influenced by the Crossed series of comics, and if you've heard of those, you know where we're going. This qualifies as transgressive cinema, but just barely. Jabba's flinches just a bit, and that's standard for Taiwanese Hong Kong cinema. You can get away with stuff like Evil Dead Trap, but just barely. Every limit is pushed, though, so be prepared. 
The plot here is nothing new. Boy and girl live together but are having trouble because he's just not giving 100% and she's feeling less than appreciated. Then, zombie outbreak. Boy vows to save girl and prove his love. I mean, hell, it's the plot to Shaun of the Dead. Thing is, there's absolutely no Winchester here to have a pint and wait for this all to all blow over in and zero giggles to be had. These aren't zombies. Not even rage zombies. These are kind of sadosexual zombies. The virus in question is as catching as the common cold but is related to rabies, so you get super violent and sadistic but with lowered inhibitions. So if you have even the slightest inclination to be any kind of deviant, well, off you go, enjoy your cannibalism or whatever. Oh, and you won't be inclined to harm others who are infected because that's the virus trying to spread, so yeah, you'll team up with other infected. Yay, serial killer cannibal zombie rape teams. As boy, Jim, tries to get across a very, very, um, busy city to rescue his girl, his girl, Cat, has escaped a subway, including a subway pervert newly converted to virus-psycho subway pervert in hot pursuit. And they both try to survive until they can be reunited and, um, I don't know, hang out? That's a big problem with this film and films of the type. Unlike Romero's brilliant Dawn and Day of the Dead, there's no subtext here. It's hopeless from the start, so survival isn't the thing so much as what this all means. Here... There's some extremely daring and risky commentary on how useless the government and leadership is. Even the fictional president of China meets a gory fate. That fact is extremely edgy, and even more so is that everyone talks about electing him. And a running gag that nobody in the film has confidence in him because, ah, I didn't elect him. Political pot shots at a guy who kills and imprisons people who compare him to a Disney character would qualify as very, very risky stuff, as not everyone in the film can live in Canada. Kudos for having the guts. But the fact remains that we're just watching this play out. Only an idiot would see a happy ending coming. At the end of the day, this is similar to the Crossed comics in that way as well. It's just a collection of edgelord, watch-what-we-do-next stuff combined with Walking Dead nihilism. It spreads pretty thin for a feature-length film. It ends up being a collection of vignettes. Now, there's something to be said for that. This old gorehound was absolutely impressed with the practical effects work on display. Really, really solid stuff overall. Some very bad characters do very bad and, oh crap, they went all the way there stuff. And then they get theirs in return in full tilt, choke on them glory. If you're into that sort of thing, Belly up to the bar because it's $1 shot night and you can get really wasted before the night's over. It's not a bad movie. It's just not great. And unless you're into transgressive cinema that's more into pushing limits than telling a story, there's nothing for you here. This is so into gore and extremity it almost qualifies as a guinea pig film. Yeah, I went there and so do they. Almost. Like I said, they flinch at some key moments where I doubt they would if this was a European or an American film. But then it wouldn't be on Shudder, it'd be relegated to tables at horror conventions next to August Underground and other such nonsense. Time to leave the cinema, but we're staying on the spooky side of town. The very spooky side, if we're to be honest. Back to the world of podcasts. 
to one of the finest fictional ongoing storytelling podcasts out there. Family, won't you gather together and join me in discussing... <clears throat> Gotta put on my best Steve Shell here. Old Gods of Appalachia. Just like Johnny Sims last time, I can't compare to the man himself. I mean, this is a guy who has a Steve Reeds feature on his Patreon. And I claim to have a voice of gold. This glorious bastard literally gets paid to read whatever his patrons want. I seethe with envy. Anyway, Old Gods of Appalachia came out of nowhere almost three years ago. I forget how I found it, but it immediately grabbed me. The conceit is simple at the root. Around the turn of the 20th century in Appalachia, what if the region saw a renewal of belief in the old gods rather than a renewal of belief in Christianity as actually happened? What if the tent revivals and traveling preachers served different loyalties than the good god of Abraham? From there, Steve Shell and Cam Collins created a world of more or less two sides. The green, representing nature, the wild, life, impossible to control, dangerous at its heart, but giving to those who serve and seek to further it. Mother Nature and her children, as unruly as some may be. On the other, the dark things of the earth. Oil, coal, fire, industry, naturally opposed to the green as her destruction is required to further its goals. Death is natural to it. Carbon is, after all, dead things. The deep, the shadow, the holes in the ground, dug by men or otherwise. Between both sides, puny mortals. The forces of nature, green and black, are immoral. That would require them to stoop to the level of men. They are well above us. But men, men can sometimes tame and take a share of their power as their own. Make deals, bargains or ally themselves with them if they share interests, or serve if they bow before the right master. And that world, across the decades before and after the turn of the 20th century and the dawn of the Industrial Age, in the mountains and hollers of Appalachia, a place of haints and curses, wards and witchcraft, industry and faith, Steve and Cam have crafted three seasons and counting of the most riveting dramas that swerve from action-packed to amusing to outright terrifying. Tales of powerful nature spirits and things we might call demons to feuds between families that end in battles straight out of comic books. Serial killers powered by blood and magic, young children with powers beyond their understanding forced to protect their friends from the literal boogeymen, the list goes on. Sometimes it's just Steve acting everything on his own, other times they have a cast. All the time, it's just damn perfect. Just completely perfect. It's never been less than that. Except when I'm suggesting Steve's mother was another species because of another cliffhanger making me wait a week or longer to find out what happened. You silver-tongued bastard, you know what you did. Speaking of casts, they've got their first live shows lined up, and you know what they've gone and done? They have written an all-new show specifically for the live experience called Unknown Roads, which will feature Stephen Cam, of course, as well as returning cast members Yuri Lowenthal and Corey Ryan Forrester, as well as live music by Landon Blood and Keena Graham. Oh, and they also have some new guy who's going to show up named Cecil Baldwin. Yeah. They have Cecil 
Welcome to Night Vale, the father of all great podcast character actors, Baldwin, coming to play an all-new character for these live dates in October in Virginia. Just Virginia. I cannot go to Virginia. I am bitter. Despite my bitterness, go listen to this podcast. Just start at the beginning. Go complete your social media rituals, as they say, on their Facebook to find out about these live dates and what will hopefully be some kind of live streaming offer for those of us who can't go to bloody Virginia to see this one-time-only set of events. And be well, family, you hear? I'd like to say we're stepping away from horror now, but, well, the cat won't let me. No, I don't own a cat. I'm talking about the nameless protagonist of Stray, the new release on PlayStation and PC that's making some waves out there. It's not what you think it is. Stray made some waves when the trailer first dropped last year and everyone saw you could play as a cat, do cat things, and interact with cute robots. The Kawhi meter went off the charts and cat fans began salivating. I'm wondering if they're going to be okay after playing the game. Wandering around doing cat things and interacting with cute robots is indeed about 60% of the game. You wind up stuck in an underground city with said robots who quickly reveal that everything is dead, including people, and they're all stuck down there. It becomes apparent that if you want to see your fellow cats again, you're going to have to more or less solve the big problem and free everyone. First off, you do have to suspend your disbelief. Either cats have evolved to be very smart, or you've got to accept that you're driving this cat and that's all there is. No cat is going to do all this stuff. They're going to pee on things and nap. They're not going on this huge mission. That was easy for me to do, as this is far in the future, so go forth, brilliant future cat. The thing is, while a big chunk of the early game is exactly what you think, wandering around, doing cat stuff, talking to robots, solving puzzles, you then shift gears and get a tiny hint that, hmm, things look kind of icky, don't they? Well, yes, they do. Then, all at once, you are thrown smack dab in the middle of a mid-90s action movie take on a cosmic horror story with absolutely no warning. I mean none. To quote an old, very excellent comic strip making fun of cat girls, this is not kawaii. This is not kawaii at all. The tone shift is really shocking, and the game becomes a full-tilt survival horror game. No joke. For a pretty big section, maybe 10% of the title overall, you're in a survival horror game. Too bad if that's not okay and you just wanted to rub against a robot to make a heart emoji appear on their face screen. That is history for a while. It's combat and running and then running and running and oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, and dying a lot while you figure out how to survive. And then, voila, more cute robots. Meditating and playing Mahjong. No, no, that's fine. I enjoy panic attacks. I'll be over here for a minute. You guys relax. Before it's over, you'll also be playing a stealth action title. Again, all at once, no warning for a solid 20% or so of the game. Just deal with it. That's what it is now. Get ready to hide and run and hide and dodge and fail and time sentries and dodge and run and hide. These sections that vary from the core mechanics are not as solid as the primary game, as you might expect, but while they can be frustrating, they're worth it. The game isn't long. 
I'd read six hours, and those guys must have been cruising. I wound up around eight hours and still missed a bunch of stuff. I missed completing side quests and several collectibles, and not because I was in a hurry. The game isn't great about telling you when you're passing beyond an area for good except at one point, so make sure you scour everything if you're a completionist. You won't necessarily know when you can't go back and look further. At 8 hours, I'd say the game is a bargain at the retail of $27. It's free with one of the tiers of PlayStation Plus, and could they make their new system any more confusing? And I played it that way, so I'd be satisfied paying for it though. It's a gorgeous game with amazing amounts of detail, and most importantly, it's solid as a rock. Day one, it's solid. I didn't run into a single issue. That's amazing in this day and age. Perhaps by limiting the scope, they were able to build such a world and keep it working. I encourage you to play this and take your time. Get those achievements. Bask in the atmosphere. The story is tragic. Enjoy it while it lasts. You'll be sad when you say goodbye. Finally, music! I've been waiting to talk about this since I started the podcast. It didn't make the first entertainment episode because the album dropped that Friday and I didn't want to hold the episode. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm going to say. The Warning are the future of rock and roll. Just in case you missed that. The Warning are the future of rock and roll. I'm dead serious. This is a Dave Grohl drops the first Foo Fighters record moment. Pearl Jam releases 10. Cheap Trick releases live at Budokan. Don't get me wrong, it's a good record. It's a really solid record, but it's the band that's the future even more than this release, as great as the release is. The warning are the Villarreal sisters from Mexico. Daniela, or Danny, on guitar and vocals. Alessandra, or Ali, on bass and Paulina, or appropriately enough, Pau, on drums and vocals. Danny is 22, Pau is 20, Ali is just 17. Do you remember a number of years ago when this video went viral of three cute little girls playing a fairly respectable cover of Inner Sandman by Metallica? They even hit some talk shows in the U.S. This is them. They never left that practice room. That was around eight years ago. Now they are the warning, and Error is their first full release on a major label. They're all original, they're putting the power back in Power Trio, and they are going to change the world. They're wholesome enough that you could send your tweener little sister to their show alone. To announce the release date of their first EP, Pow baked a cake at her parents' house and decorated it with the date on it. I think they all still live at home. There's not a swear word on the record. What is on the record? Passionate, girl power lyrics encouraging young women like them to stand up for themselves and know their own worth. This from young women in a country with a terrible problem of femicide and sexual violence. They are not subtle. All three of them sing. Danny just has a voice that most pop rock songstresses would kill for, so she takes lead most of the time. The record? Chock full of hard rock anthems and power ballads that all could be number one hits. Each and every one. There's not a filler track on here. They just got done with a solo tour, playing small theaters and clubs, and by the end, word of mouth had them selling out every single night. And that's the last time anyone will see them in a venue that small. Now they're opening amphitheaters for the Pretty Reckless and Hailstorm, and those fans coming to see Taylor and Lizzie have no idea what they're in for if they show up early. 
Photos and videos from the show so far show the trio absolutely flattening these crowds because live, they are a total powerhouse. Go check out this record. It's called Error, out now via Republic Records. That way you can say you were a fan before everyone jumped on the bandwagon and be one of the cool kids because I'm telling you, they're only going to get better, they're only going to get bigger. Last, but certainly not least, we've got the one, the only, the single dumbest band in a world that contains Stained and Kid Rock, Ailstorm. The finest pirate metal band in the Seven Seas has released a new one, Seventh Rum of a Seventh Rum, and I'm here to say that it might be their best record ever. Yes, I'm a fan. As completely ridiculous as they are, as pointless, goofy, and just plain stupid, I adore them completely. You cannot be sad while listening to Ailstorm. Happy? Yes. Drunk? Preferably. Confused? Most likely. But never, ever sad. Lead idiot Christopher Bowes has once again rallied his blackguards to concoct a bunch of songs and continue the tale of time-traveling pirates, and there's much afoot. Their last record, Curse of the Crystal Coconut, just plain wasn't very good. It had highlights, but I, for one, didn't find myself listening to it much. I was worried the boys were about done and needed to hang up their black sails. Seventh Rum has convinced me I was wrong. A new wind has filled out their sails and blown through their empty heads, giving us a collection of anthems that honestly ranks up with their previous best, Back Through Time, which brought us shipwrecked and death throes of the terror squid. As usual, the deluxe version of the album, to be found on streaming services, has acoustic versions of all songs, as well as a version of all songs, For Dogs, where the vocals are replaced by synth lines of dogs barking. Because of course it does. Most importantly, perhaps, is the continuation of the mythos of the band. We see the finale of the Wooden Leg Trilogy, including verses in Spanish and Japanese hearkening back to the original tunes. In the epic under-blackened banners, an anthem that I'd argue is their finest song ever, the suggestion is made that now they are ghost pirates, a suggestion also referred to in the Battle of Cape Fear River, the latest video from the record, as Blackbeard becomes a ghost pirate king and the boys become ghosts in the video. Well, what is it? Have the time-traveling pirates shuffled off this mortal coil and become ghost pirates to sail the seven seas forever? Can you, in fact, get wasted on rum while a ghost? Is their icon, the giant rubber duck, also a ghost now? Does any of this nonsense matter in any way whatsoever as long as they keep singing profanity-filled songs about piracy, alcohol, and other idiocy set to really good metal? I sincerely doubt it. Go see them on tour now. Listen to Seventh Rum of the Seventh Rum and get lost in the gay dolphin. Phew, so much to talk about. So much entertaining entertainment. And I didn't even get to everything. There's just so many entertaining things out there. But you know what else is entertaining? The weird. And that's where we're headed next, me buckos. So hoist the Jolly Roger in the black sails, for we be pillaging the... <clears throat> sorry, sorry. Been listening to far too much Ailstorm. Yes, so next week, The Weird. Featuring some personal tales. Does that pique your interest? Well, we'll see.
In the meantime, remember, do not dip your hands into the water surrounding your vehicle, because life is a dark ride. These are the credits. Don't skip them. These people are important. All content written, produced, recorded, and otherwise the responsibility of Justin Dark for This is a Dark Production Company. All rights reserved, 2022. Podcast logo courtesy of Evangelist 7. Thanks, Jimmy. Production company logo and artwork courtesy of Designs That Kill. Thanks, Laura and Tyler. Contact us at darkproductionco at gmail.com or on Twitter or Facebook at darkprodco. That's D-A-R-K-P-R-O-D-C-O. Darkprodco. You get it. Contact us there. This is a dark podcast.